Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Foreign Affairs on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by the doctors, and in this case, I mean Dr. Sergio Trifkovich and Dr. Thomas Fleming. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Pleasure. Well, uh, it's been, uh, as they might say, an interesting several weeks. We had Brexit this summer. We had the November surprise of Donald Trump. And I guess I would want our listeners to get some context from Dr. Trifkovich about the reactions to those two events in Europe, which will set us up for our discussions today about Italy, France, Germany, etc. Uh both were widely perceived, and rightly so, as uh, defeats for an establishment which is not trusted by the masses. However, uh, there is a major difference in that in the case of Great Britain, uh, there was also a secret sigh of relief by some Euro-Federalists such as uh, Jinker and possibly Merkel herself, who always regarded Great Britain as, as something of an anomaly. Let's not forget that uh, it was Charles de Gaulle who initially in 1961 blocked Britain's uh, entry into the European economic community as it was then, because he regarded it as something of a Trojan horse of the United States or at least a country not committed to the kind of project he had in mind, which was that of a united Europe from the North Sea to the Urals. And uh, later on, uh, especially uh, with Margaret Thatcher always seeking to renegotiate various deals and to obtain opt-outs for Britain, which admittedly was paying more than her fair share into the common budget, especially when it came to agriculture, uh, I think that uh, uh, there, there was a widely shared sense among the Brussels bureaucrats and uh, the proponents of Euro-Federalist projects, primarily in Germany and France, that life would be easier without Britain. Having said that, of course, uh, many of them also hoped that uh, uh, at the end of the day, and this hope is still shared by some uh, members of the British elite, that uh, the powers that be will be able to sabotage the whole Brexit process. And that by either demanding parliamentary approval for the invocation of Article 50 of the Maastricht Treaty, or by various other legal and technical means, they can uh, make this long drawn out process into uh, a kind of never ending affair when uh, uh, some uh, allegedly reasonable pe people will say, look, we really need a new referendum because this has been too complicated and uh, too constitutionally difficult to resolve. So uh, Brexit is not a done deal, even though Prime Minister Theresa May claims that uh, she will observe it, uh, the results of the referendum. I think that uh, a lot of subterfuge is still going on. By contrast, the election of Donald Trump was universally perceived as uh, a major disaster. And uh, instead of prompting 
uh, self-examination of the elites, which in many respects are very similar on both sides of the Atlantic. They have much more in common with, uh, among themselves than they do with the ordinary people of, of their own countries. There was also uh, a touch of uh, anti-American schadenfreude, which has always been lurking uh, under the surface uh, in, in uh, the European leftist and liberal circles, uh, an implication that the United States is uh, at least partly, if not predominantly, a country of weird people who uh, walk around with guns and uh, who uh, are not to be trusted and uh, who are primitive, uneducated, and, and all the rest of it. And uh, I think that uh, uh, they sighed uh, a sigh of relief with the defeat of uh, Hofer in, in Austria, which was primarily the result of a major propaganda campaign, uh, the like of which we haven't seen even during uh, the <laughs> unrestrained Trumpophobia of the media machine in media machine in, in the United States, and uh, last but not least, I think that uh, they are now trying to present Renzi's referendum defeat as nothing to do with uh, uh, being pro or anti EU, pro or anti Euro. That it was really a domestic, technical, constitutional issue that had little to do with fundamental ideological and strategic issues of the day. Yes, which is certainly, um, in the case of uh, Renzi's defeat, the constitutional issues probably were not understood by 25% of the Italian electorate. There's no sign from interviews or reading, reading uh, uh, public opinion uh, that anybody cared. What galvanized the uh, Italian no vote was very interesting. It's because it was uh, the response was fairly tepid. Well, the we the constitution needs reform. We can't fix it. We need more power in the prime minister, less power in the uh, in the senate, and uh, we need to have a unicameral legislature. All these things. People said, well, maybe, maybe not. But when Renzi said, "I'm staking my reputation on this. If I don't get what I want in this, I'm gone." Well, that woke the Italians up. You mean we can get rid of this this clown? <laughs> and, um, you know, he had been very popular when he got elected, and he's a somewhat astute politician. He had been uh, mayor in Florence, where, by the way, he's hated today. But, um, you know, he's an he's a, he's a old guard uh, lefty, although a very young man. He, when he was elected uh, prime minister, he was the youngest uh, head of state, well, not technically head of state in Italy, but the youngest ruler in, uh, in Europe. And uh, everything has gone wrong. The immigrant crisis, the banking crisis, the Italian economy, everything is wrong. And frankly, they look at Renzi and say, if, we're, if anybody's going to fix it, it's not going to be you. So it was uh, the vote had almost nothing to do with the uh, proposed constitutional changes uh, but a temporary rejection 
of the communist left, because let's not forget that the party Renzi represents is essentially what ha it was the Communist Party. They changed their name to the Democratic Party of the left, and now they're just the Democrats. Uh, in our country, of course, they just they used to be the Democrats, and now they're the communists, and they but they haven't changed their name, so it's a kind of mirror image. But uh, and so it's it's really it's a it's and part of Renzi's idea identity is of course he's a very strong europhile very much very much believes although he he would stand up here and there to the eu but he's very much uh, a, uh, a in favor of uh, globalization so whatever comes out of the italian election that's another that's another subject but clearly um the attempt to minimize the significance is i think uh, uh whistling past the graveyard it is also somewhat ironic that uh, uh, Renzi's personal uh, character and values, notwithstanding, the Italian constitutional system does need reform. Yes. It's, it has been dysfunctional for decades. And uh, uh, it is also interesting that Pepe Grillo's five-star movement, by being adamantly opposed to it, is also making sure that it will never come to power even though it is now the number one force or indeed be part of a ruling coalition which by the way they reject anyway yes, they, re they reject they say they will never form a coalition government and which is which is convenient because you know grillo is a uh, uh, an italian comic see in our country we have clowns who uh head the respective parties but they've never actually except for al franken they've never actually worked as comedians whereas with pepe grillo I mean, he is a comedian um and of course his movement is all over the map on the issues it's very hard to pin them down because they started out as a more or less sort of populist protest in favor of clean government and they're increasingly sounding a whole lot like the communists. That is, we need to increase the size of government. We need to make government work for the people. We need a guaranteed minimum income. And um, I'm not sure that the source of their popularity has much to do with their positions, their leftist positions they're taking, but that they are the outsiders. They're, they would be Trumpists in America. That is, they, they, they just want to say no to everything going on. Unfortunately, like a lot of the pure Trumpists in America who say, I'm not going to support this guy if John Bolton is put in. I'm not going to support him if he, if he gives a job to Newt Gingrich or uh, Rudy Giuliani. These are childish positions to take. Politics is not just the art of the possible, it's the art of the criminal. And, you know, if you're not going to involve the usual, you know, the usual uh, criminal suspects uh, who, as part of your ruling coalition, in, in the world we live in, you're not going to rule. But what, what is interesting is that if we take uh, for granted that Five Star is not really... Uh, a clearly defined party with a, a, a clearly defined position on, say, Euroscepticism on the basis of a Weltanschauung, of, yeah. of the world outlook, we don't really have a Eurosceptic party or a, an anti-establishmentarian party in Italy that has any chance of playing a major role in national politics, because Lega Nord is not what it used to be. No. 
And at the same time, if we uh, look at, for instance, Gerd Wilders in Holland, or uh, after all, in spite of his defeat, uh, of Hofer's defeat, Heinz Christian Strache in Austria has uh, a solid 35% support, and Marine Le Pen in France ditto, we don't really have a party in Italy that is uh, capable of galvanizing and mobilizing this presumably latently present anti-immigrant and anti-EU and anti-Euro sentiment, which seems to have been dispersed into either forces of potential fifth column clownism, like Pepe Grillo's Five Star, or else uh, increasingly uh, uh, regionally focused Lega Nord, which no longer has the capacity to unite with other forces of the right into some semblance of Berlusconi's once coalition. It's uh, it's interesting to, to bring up Berlusconi because when Berlusconi had his coalition, which consisted of sort of free market ex-Christian Democrats, people who wanted to, you know, uh, get, get, get some of the corruption out of uh, Italian public life and public contracting, that was the center of it, uh, his, of his pole of liberty. And then uh, on his right of center, he had the ex-fascists, the the, which, which had become the Italian social movement, the National Alliance, and you know wh- wh- whatever else uh, they, they wanted to turn it into. And his left wing was the Lega Nord, which was, again, it was free market and anti-immigrant. And, you know, when uh, during the 90s and early uh, in this millennium, when the Berlusconi people were riding high, they had the the most ideologically sound and pragmatic coalition in Europe because on the one hand they were in favor of decentralizing and cutting the size of government getting government out of running the regions which by the way what one of the one of the things which this uh, reform of Renzi would do is take power away from the regions but secondly of course they were uh, right-wing nationalist and and uh, both wings of the party had agreed to be uh, very strongly anti-immigrant. So the the Bossi-Fini law on repatri- on returning uh, arriving immigrants and refugees and turning their boats around and taking them back where they came from, and although it was loosely enforced, it was the best Im- it was the best refugee immigrant law in uh, in Europe. And underneath the surface. You could talk. I've, I've talked to Italian leftists who are just, you know, blue collar workers or cab drivers, and they have said over and over that the communists will or the left will always lose as if they allow immigration to be made the issue. And because the left is consistently wrong on this issue in Italy, and that's why they consistently get beaten. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that the at this current migrant crisis. You know they've got they've taken in of of this huge influx of North Africans. They've taken in about a third of them. I mean it's 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 an enormous problem. They're taking over. Uh, they're they're confiscating unused uh, residential property. The the uh, the t- the government is taking over hotels in order to house uh, Somali and North African uh, immigrants. This is extremely unpopular, and it's it's arousing great bitterness and anger. Uh, against this influx of immigrants, and yet uh, certainly uh, none of certainly not Renzi's party, 
and, and certainly uh, the Lega is, is in favor of turning them all back, but they're now confined to north of the Pope. Exactly. So you, yeah, so you're you're you're, you're right, and uh, and and Cinque Stelle. We don't know, you know, uh, the, the five star movement. God knows what uh, what position they're going to take. Well, they're not going to take yeah. a position in defense of civilizational heritage yeah. and yeah. Uh, of uh, ethnocultural coherence of the Italian nation. That that is for sure. Their, their support is from Italian millennials, which. <laughs> These people, they don't. These people are not civilized, and so therefore, of course, they're they're not going to. What the support for their movement is important, though, is that they are they are outsiders. They're inexperienced, and anybody who any normal sane person who would vote for a Cinque Stelle member, you know, and they've got what five major cities where they their mayors are running them. Uh, anybody who would vote for them to be mayor, and by the way, they, as mayors, they seem to be doing reasonably well. Is what he's saying is no to a corrupt political system that has been governing Italy since the Risorgimento. But we can be pretty certain that the longer they're part of government at any level, city, municipal, regional, or national, which they're not, of course, that they will actually be drawn into the system because the Italian political system has this amazing capacity regardless of one's declared intentions or ideological standing, uh, to turn everyone into a melting pot. Well, it's like joining the, uh, the Capone organization and say, you know, I do believe we should enforce laws against uh, homicide and, uh, and distillation of alcohol, distribution of alcohol. Uh, I, I'm with you, Al, but, I, but on, on these points we disagree. I mean, a system is a system. And there's no more corrupt system than the Italian. Um, when we were talking about the show earlier, Stephen suggested, well, what about the potential or growing alliance between the Lega Nord, which is a, a decentralist movement and a, a North Italian movement, and very strong in some parts in the Veneto and Lombardia, still very strong. And they're getting in bed with, the, uh, with Pepe Grillo. Well, and and the five star. Well, there are they're both they're both outsider movements, although less and less so in the case of the Lega. But the longer the Lega has been in power, and in the Berlusconi government, of course, they had the uh, the the Ministry of Justice was in their hands. They had at one point the uh, the Chamber of Deputies. The Speaker was a, a legista, a woman, and. Um, but the longer they were in power, the more corrupt. And Bossy himself, somebody, I, I believe I'm the first English speaker uh, to have interviewed him and to have published interviews with him. And I got to know the senator reasonably well way back then. And, but he became incredibly corrupt so that all the original members of his party repudiated him and they went elsewhere. So the Lega and, 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 the, and the Five Star Movement will follow, as you, as you point out, sir, you'll follow in exactly the same uh, pattern because the nature of Italian politics, it's not an accident, it is the essence, is unprincipled corruption. And the secret of this is something they developed at the end of the 19th century, a, a, a technique called transversalism. And that is... If you're, uh, if you're, uh, if if you if you represent the far right, you know, sort of monarchist, nationalist right, and you're threatened by liberals, you know, who are going to overturn you, then you make an alliance with the far left, and so you uh, an alliance basically 
only it's totally unscrupulous and unprincipled you you agree to give the far left half of what they want you'll give them socialize this socialize that in return for their supporting you this is why the De christian democrats were always in bed with the socialists in the 1970s and 80s so italian politics at its root uh, despite all their posturing and all they all every party has its ideological slogans and its set of principles at its root, it, they, they, it is a repudiation of the whole notion of political principle. It's interesting, Dr. Fleming, because you mentioned that idea, those policies of um, the friend of my friend or the enemy of my enemy. And I'm reminded yeah. of a column you wrote some time ago in some magazine uh, about um, the idea that the friend of my friend is not necessarily my friend and the enemy of my enemy is, is not necessarily my friend either. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and we can see it's somewhat going nowhere. I, I'm, if I'm understanding both of you correctly, unlike Trump and Brexit, in which there were, it seems to be some clear winner, some clear loser, am I understanding you correctly that this is really a victory for nobody? Well, I would say that many Italians, uh, in spite of their loud complaining and the rolling of the eyes and gnashing of teeth, are in fact pretty content to continue with the status quo and for a country which has seen practically no economic growth in the past two decades for a country which is uh, chronically as as we mentioned gripped by institutionalized corruption and uh, uh, a dysfunctional political and constitutional system it is remarkable in fact how relatively few Italians feel that this is an existential issue and uh, how many of them seem to be quietly resigned to just living their lives uh, the best they can and pretending that uh, life is horrible while in essence they uh, feel far less angst and far less uh, sense of unendurable uh, uh, pressure from the way things are than many Americans. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an excellent point, Serge, and there are a couple of reasons for it. If you compare the mood in Greece uh, among, my, you know, I have friends in both countries, see them and correspond with them, the mood in Greece is genuinely dark, genuinely despairing. I, I, I have friends who are executives who say, uh, well, I haven't been paid for six months. But I, I hold on because I know eventually the company is turning a profit and I'll get a paycheck. I mean, it's hard to put in an effective 40, 50-hour week as a business executive when, when there's no money coming in. This is just, but this doesn't happen in Italy. And secondly, one never knows how, what the Italian economy is because except for some brief periods of crackdown, uh, the, uh, much of the Italian economy is, is underground, is black. Uh, not just in the, in, the, in the infamous South, where in Sicily and Southern Italy, organized crime, the Mafia, the Andrangheta, the Camorra, where they have, have ruled supreme for 150 years, uh, but in the North, where, you know, back in, the, back in the 70s, I remember reading about uh, a company, I think it was in Modena or Bologna, uh, but in the Emilia, and they were... Um, they were manufacturing city buses in a black market underground facility. I mean, they were selling city buses to Italian municipalities and across Europe, but it was off the books. 
And so how much of the, you know, it is possible to scrounge and live on the edges in Italy. And, you know, you may report an income of 25, 30,000 uh, euros a year, but you may be making twice that. So it's very hard to tell. The, uh, uh, under, um, during this so-called clean hands investigation, the, the Tangentopoli, which brought down the Italian political system at the time, the party system, um, they brought in IRS agents from the United States. And all of a sudden, the Italians were having to pay something like their fair share of taxes. And there was an outrage. I thought there was going to be revolution. My impression is that that, pr that has pretty much slacked off. And it's back to business as usual where it's better to pay a politician 25% of what you owe than to pay your full tax bill. And, and you know, I stay in hotels where they won't take credit cards. There's a nice hotel in Rome I, I used to stay at. And they won't take credit cards because credit cards, it's traceable income. So how bad is the Italian economy? And I, I haven't a clue. To some extent, we can compare the situation in Italy with that in Spain, where you also have chronic low growth, uh, the immigrant problem, and uh, the shackles of the euro, uh, uh, the common currency, and also you don't really see a genuine backlash. Their equivalent of the Five Star Movement is Podemos, we can. Yeah. Also, supposedly anti-establishmentarian, but essentially leftist, and we don't see a strong resurgence of uh, some form of nationalist or neo-Francoist uh, sentiment. And even in Catalonia, which I visited last summer, the sense that uh, independence is not really on the cards uh, is, is very strong, especially among the business community. So, unlike... France, which is, uh, of course, also uh, a, a, a country in uh, Romanesque tradition, at least uh, uh, largely so, uh, I would say that the bastions of uh, the resurgence of uh, self-examination uh, concerning identity and, and uh, nation, the future of the nation is in post-communist uh, Central and Eastern Europe and uh, to a much lesser extent in Benelux, perhaps, with Gert Wilders. But if we are looking at uh, some seriously Eurosceptic governments, Eurosceptic in terms of the ideological outline of the project as emanating from Brussels, as reflected, for instance, in the, in the attempt to impose quotas for migrants uh, and uh, make them obligatory, uh, it's interesting that countries like Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland are actually in the vanguard of, of resisting such attempts. How is, um, what is going on? It, I get, I, everything I read about what's going on with the Serbian government confuses me more and more. Is uh, they, There are people who pose as nationalists but sell out to, uh, to the United States or the EU. What exactly is going on in the, with the current government? Uh, to put it succinctly, uh, the Prime Minister Aleksandar Vucic came from Sheshe's radical yeah. party originally, yeah. and so he has been proving his pro-EU, pro-Western credentials ever since. Uh, it is like Kurt Waldheim <laughs> at the helm <laughs> of 
of either the Republic of Austria or the United Nations because of his uh, record in, in a Feldgrau uniform, uh, he had to prove to uh, uh, the global elite and uh, uh, go out of his way to, to establish his bona fides as as a good globalist and uh, internationalist. Like or, or, or Mitterrand, for example, who right. was also very, you know, he was a, a right, right-wing fascist during World War II and never repudiated his friends in the Pétainiste right and in fact protected them and uh, got them jobs and did them favors. Now, in, in the case of Vucic, we also have uh, uh, an egomaniac who just loves to dominate the TV screens with his theatrics. Everybody's against him, but he will uh, uh, stand fast and endure on the path of European integration, regardless of what happens anywhere else. And uh, this has become uh, a substitute for the old communist mantra of socialist self-management. Yeah, I'm talking about Titoist ideology yeah. and, uh, and uh, non-alignment. Uh, and uh, the degree to which he doesn't know what he's doing is illustrated by the fact that in September he even accepted the invitation from uh, uh, the Clinton Foundation to give an address in New York where Bill Clinton patronizingly patted him on, on the shoulder. It was utterly embarrassing. And when he came back to Belgrade, he... Uh, said smilingly, I did that because I'm so clever. Now, it sounds like comedy, but that's literally how it is. And uh, within his government, uh, you have people who are outright uh, EU shills or even NATO lobbyists, but among the people, there is still uh, a large percentage of, of ordinary voters who believe that having been a nationalist or supposedly a nationalist once, he's still pretending and playing the game and at the end of the day he will show his uh, true credentials. And it's something similar to the projection of people's hopes, wishes and aspirations into Milosevic a quarter yeah. of a century ago. Okay, he was a commie, but now we know he's really doing the right thing. And sooner or later, and, and this is of course forlorn hope. However, what is somewhat encouraging is that the Russians have had enough of this game and they're no longer releasing various funds for uh, easy term credits for Serbian railways or, or modernization of infrastructure and so on, because Vucic has been trying to sit on two chairs for too long, but when push comes to shove, he always opts for the wrong side, which is the Brussels side. And they have nothing to offer. It is obvious that the the whole mechanism is in a chronic state of crisis, that uh, the Lisbon state jacket no longer functions, that uh, with Brexit and with the rebellion among the Visegrad Four, the, the former communist countries of, of Central Europe, uh, Euro-federalist project is dead. And yet this mantra of... Uh, of the European path, which has no alternative, is being repeated. It's enough for a Serb to drive to Sofia, for goodness sake, the capital of Bulgaria, <laughs> just four hours away, and to see nine years after joining the EU what Bulgaria is like. Believe it or not, Bulgarian seasonal workers are coming to Serbia 
to work for 20 euros a day plus board and lodging picking fruit. Mm. But it's really cheap to ski there, Dr. Trifkovich. You have to keep in mind the benefits for those of us who live in Western Europe. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, God save us from living in countries where it's cheap for people from rich countries to come to have fun. <laughs> I'm going to take both of you further north from Serbia and Italy over the Alps, speaking of skiing, into Austria. You mentioned there was a Trumpophobia uh, campaign against uh, Hofer. I, I, I'm sure Dr. Fleming was was not as aware of this. Uh, maybe some, yeah, maybe some of our listeners in the United, in the United States, States wouldn't have, wouldn't have heard, have of, heard this. of this. Can you fill us in? When we had the first round of uh, uh, the Austrian presidential election in, in early June, it was a neck-and-neck -neck race, and then in the finale, uh, somewhat mysteriously, a huge batch of postal votes appeared and, uh, uh, and uh, gave a very narrow victory to Van der Bellen, the establishment candidate. But then, because of technical irregularities, rather than supposedly deliberate fraud, the Constitutional Court ordered uh, 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 a new election. What is interesting is that Hungering focused to a large extent on the possibility or probability that the Austrians would be ostracized and stigmatized in the rest of the civilized world as the torchbearers of, of some neo-Nazi revival. Even though Hofer is in fact <laughs> the soft face or uh, one could say almost the centrist wing of uh, the Freedom Party of Heinz Christian Strache. Uh, and uh, this sense that uh, you would be deemed uh, uh, culturally and, and politically unacceptable to civilized company if you had a head of state, uh, uh, someone like Hofer as head of state, was uh, really the focus of a campaign which I don't think was spontaneous or accidental. Uh, you had politicians and media personalities from all over the European Union coming to Vienna and repeating this message and being given prime time on national television, uh, in radio talk shows. I was last in Vienna three weeks ago. Actually, I must confess, uh, with a good friend of mine from Vienna, I drove to Braunau am Inn because they're going to pull down Hitler's birth house next spring. I did it not, of course, because I cherish the place, but because I simply wanted to take a picture before, uh, in front of this historically significant building before it, it dis disappears forever. As we were driving, it was uh, really incredible. You could switch from one radio talk show to another. Some of them were even in English without translation. People assumed that uh, the right-minded, bien pensants, uh, speak good enough English. They don't even need translation. And, uh, and then uh, there would be correspondence reports from... Uh, Paris, from London, from Amsterdam, and again the same mantra would be repeated that Austria has to choose between being a uh, bona fide member of the civilized community of nations which are sensitive, multicultural, welcoming to immigrants and uh, 
uh, open to uh, new ideas or else it will be perceived as uh, the dangerous bastion of uh, neo-Nazi uh, uh, nationalist revival for which it will be blamed ever after if then the contagion and, and the domino effect uh, spreads across Europe. Hmm. Well, and it seems obviously we, we have the same, whatever language you're speaking, the same uh, titles get trotted out, racist, xenophobe, homophobe, misogynist. Uh, that you must be all of these things. It doesn't matter what country you're in, if you're voting for that party or that group. Um, I think it's probably interesting for Americans to see that Austria, uh, a country we're, we're not used to hearing too much about, is entering this discussion as well, as we see Europe dealing with immigration in its own... Every country is dealing with it in its own cultural context and through the mirror of their own particular government. But what, what is interesting, though, that even... In spite of, of this uh, sustained uh, media, I can't call it blitz, it was, it was really steamroller, uh, continuing massage, uh, Hofer did get 46 point some, close to 47% of the vote, and uh, we don't see anything comparable in Germany itself. In fact, the only areas of Germany where you see the alternative for Deutschland uh, capturing the imagination of the electorate, including uh, the, the Western Pomerania, where uh, it came ahead of Angela Merkel's own misnamed uh, Christian Democrat Party, uh, is the former GDR. Uh, and it really drives one to the conclusion, which I mentioned in, in one of my online pieces months ago, that, uh, curiously enough, uh, State socialism in its Soviet guise uh, had been much less proof of national identity and, uh, and cultural uh, heritage than liberal democracy. That under Soviet-style state socialism you had uh, uh, the state and the society coexisting in parallel but not really penetrating into each other. Whereas, and, and it was possible for a Communist Party member to come home, relax with friends, have a few drinks and crack political jokes and have a serious discussion about uh, politics and economy and society and so on. In the West, uh, instead of this Pavlovian carrot and stick approach that the Soviet system was based upon, we had the Freudian penetration of uh, certain ideas which were then being internalized by the members primarily of, of the educated classes so that it is literally impossible with a, a, a Manhattanite to have a serious conversation about anything at all. And which is why we uh, shun sensitive or potentially tricky topics uh, to the point of uh, not even telling jokes that uh, could be very funny about uh, Poles and, and the Irish that are part and parcel of, of life in, in Central Eastern Europe. It's part of, it's um, what we used to call, and I've called for many years, this soft totalitarian state, 
that is a, a hard totalitarian state like Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or, Ch or China, um, you know, they, it's essentially a, a question of public control. And uh, if, if there are any expressions of dissident, they're, they're treated, uh, hard, they're put in concentration camps, they're locked up, they're beaten. Where it's, they use mostly the stick, although there are carrot incentives. Under our system, uh, which uh, the democratist system, uh, the capitalist democratist system, which the United States pioneered, but which has been followed by the uh, by most of Europe, um, it 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 we have a world structured around hedonistic gratification around prescription drugs and mass media, uh, which cor corrupt the will and essentially bribe us into being supine, indolent, stupid, and ignorant. And of course we have, you know, in the, in the, in, in the old communist regimes, they understood that they had to compete somehow uh, in the global economy, and so they actually gave their, their servile citizenry something like a serious education, even at the same time as the United States was destroying its educational system. And so really today, I know people with advanced degrees from major universities who literally cannot, <clears throat> re cannot look at, it, at a news item and see the truth that's staring out at them from the page. They can't think through any of the problems that are facing us. They have been so effectively uh, brainwashed through, through things that seem to resemble sleep teaching. We're, we've got a nation of Manchurian candidates. And of course, uh, if you look at the list of some 200 plus websites, which are now openly called uh, sources of pro-Russian disinformation, right. it's almost comical because that's the sort of thing that even the communists had given up by the late 70s and, and the 1980s, that if you do not subscribe 100% to the party line, as presented by the New York Times and, 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 and the CNN, then, of course, by definition, you're an agent of American imperialism and, and all the rest of it. And uh, that these people are doing it with a straight face, yeah. where you will find together Justin Raimondo from antiwar.com and, you know, some far leftist uh, uh, advocates of, uh, of uh, radical egalitarianism as well as the paleos and and uh, uh, the kind of centrist skeptics is uh, both worrying and uh, illustrative of uh, the descent to which uh, the American public discourse has fallen. Well, and you know, as I'm sure you've read uh, all the all the coverage on what's happening on uh, American college campuses, where they have safe zones where people can students can shield themselves from any opinion with which they uh, they don't happen to agree or that you know that that not not just you know it's not just a question of keeping Nazis out of Jewish areas it's it's a question of anybody expressing uh, anything which disagrees with the left wing of the New York Times I, I heard a woman yesterday on National Public Radio and she had started a kind of 12-step support group for people whose lives were being ruined because they so mourned for the destruction of planet Earth 
and they get together and they uh, they talk about their feelings but it's explicitly modeled on alcoholics anonymous and they're they're tr they're trying to start the healing process i mean you real what would happen in a in a real crisis in a war or a, a serious depression where there was mass unemployment i mean these <laughs> these people can't survive uh, a a not even a harsh word they can't they can't survive a uh, an honest expression of opinion but that's why i still hope and i said it many years ago i believe it was at the conference in in New Orleans uh, 13 or 14 years ago that uh, the only salvation for the Western world is uh, a very serious global economic and financial meltdown which will produce uh, which will produce an existential struggle for limited resources and uh, where the eyes will finally turn upwards because, in that sense, uh, yeah, in that sense uh, it's too bad Hillary Clinton didn't get elected. Because it would have speeded up the process. Yes, indeed. Well, gentlemen, we've, we've been talking for, for quite a while. Yes. To, to conclude, I'd like to take us a little bit outside of Europe uh, to Turkey and what's happening uh, since the, the faux coup or the planned coup, however one might want to look at it. Um, can you give us some insight into what's been happening in Turkey and, and what sort of chess game they're continuing to play with Russia about Syria? Uh, in my opinion, uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan did not stage the coup of uh, uh, July 14th, 14th or 15th, but he uh, had been informed about it in advance uh, concluded that it was not a serious affair and the one that uh, threatened his survival, but at the same time realized that it provided him with a unique opportunity to, to carry out the final purge of all enemies, real, imagined, and potential, who stood in the way of his vision of Turkey as a neo-Ottoman uh, power based on, on Islamic teaching, and the one that would retain the remnants of an empty shell of, of the Kemalist order, but which will actually pave the way for uh, the constitutional reform which he wants, which would give him uh, a powerful presidency compared to which even American president will see. Uh, it was uh, a complex gamble, and uh, he is a gambler. We've seen that before, and it seems to have paid off. Now, uh, uh, with the shifting down of the Russian on the 24th of last year, he played Vabank, hoping to bring uh, primarily the United States, but also the rest of NATO, uh, in, uh, into some form of confrontation with Russia that would also contribute to a sustained Western intervention against Bashar al-Assad. He's not worried about Bashar's alleged crimes against the Syrian people, of course, but he is worried about the Kurds along uh, the southern border, southeastern border of, of Turkey in, in, in Syria, and he also has neo-Ottoman ambitions, which after all spread not only into the Balkans and the Caucasus and the former Soviet Central Asia, but also into the neighboring uh, Arab countries. And this was manifested only 
10 days ago when he said that uh, the real reason for Operation uh, Gifatis Shield, which started on August 24th, was to help those who want to bring down Bashar al-Assad. Two days later, however, he contradicted, contradicted himself and said the real reason was to uh, destroy uh, the Islamic State and other terrorists. And of course, under other terrorists, he meant the Kurds. And, and the real reason had been to prevent the establishment of a Kurdish statelet all along. Now, the Russians actually have him by the short and curls because uh, not only has Turkey's economy lost tens of billions of dollars because of cancelled trade and construction, construction contracts and cancelled package tours by Russian tourists on Turkey's Mediterranean and Aegean shores, but also because of his demand for the extradition of Fethullah Gulen, uh, the cleric who resides in, in Pennsylvania and who may or may not have been involved in uh, the putative coup, his relations with the United States are at a low ebb, and because of his massive purge, uh, which affected over 50,000 judges, civil servants, policemen, military officers, and so on, uh, his uh, EU application, which had been moribund for years anyway, is now officially on hold in Brussels. So he really needs to diversify uh, the range of his foreign, foreign policy options. So it's both economic and diplomatic pressures that prevent him from giving full vent to where his heart really is. And it is a, an Islamic, post-secular, post-Bashar Syria in which Turkey would have a reliable ally on religious ideological grounds. He cannot pull it off, he cannot impact the outcome in Aleppo, where the government will win, and uh, he uh, is torn between the desire to be the rhetorical defender of Sunni Muslim interests in the Fertile Crescent, where the Iranians who are, of course, Shiites, and the Alawites in Syria, and Hezbollah, also Shiites in Lebanon, and the government in Baghdad are more or less on the same side. And on the other hand, to be a pragmatic politician who understands that with uh, uh, from the old mantra of zero problems with all neighbors of his former prime minister and, and strategist, Ahmed Davutoglu, he has reached the point of maximum problems with all neighbors, and in that context, Russia is just about the only major power, especially regional power, with which he can still establish some form of rapport. Hmm. Is there anything you want to add to that, Dr. Fleming? No, not not uh, not at all. Um, I, I've never been able to figure out in Erdogan's case to w w what is the balance in his character between being an, a serious Islamist and simply uh, being an an aspiring dictator. And I think these are pretty evenly balanced forces uh, in his case. But um, the more that I'd like to close out with uh, one very brief question, uh, and that is. What does it mean when, uh, maybe within the past hour or two, Angela Merkel has, at a meeting of her party, uh, CDU, has called for a ban on burqas in Germany? It's pure hypocrisy. <laughs> and, uh, well, of course. But does it mean that she's on the run? 
Uh, no, it simply means that she wants to... Uh, she's not in real danger of either having her party deselect her or losing the election. And it's really the tragedy of German politics that uh, uh, the country has been uh, uh, thrown into such depths of uh, guilt and remorse and, uh, and shame that it is literally not capable of articulating a sane nationalist option that would not look or smack or be perceived as the return to Nuremberg 1938. So this is just a uh, mean little sop to those who <laughs> warn against Islamization of, uh, of Germany, but she will continue, to continue very much as before for reasons that are ultimately mysterious. And I am not uh, a conspiracy theorist. I really uh, don't like to dwell on scenarios that are outside the perimeters of rationally provable empirical evidence. But uh, in her case, one really has to wonder whether there is something that some powers that be uh, that are in favor of uh, demographic change in Europe have the goods on her from uh, the old days when she was a Jugendleiter, a, a yeah, youth leader yeah. in the German Democratic Republic. Our friend uh, Nikos Iviroglu, uh, a, uh, a Greek journalist in Athens, when I asked him the question, and he spends a lot of time in Germany, and he said, um, in his view, communism is a disease from which it is impossible to recover. And that brought, not just as a young communist in her case, but a communist union member, I mean that her, that she was heavily invested and that her mind has been formed on, on, on these kind of insane anti-national globalist principles and that uh, she's, a, she's a prisoner, again, of, a, of an ideology that will destroy her country. But, and, and the funniest part is that uh, it is the journey Germans who take ideology so seriously. Yeah, yeah. You have a member of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, who turns out to be uh, a middle-of-the-road nationalist, country to all the labels given him. Yes. And, and at the same time, uh, since in Germany, Kultur und Ideologie are taken so seriously, once you're imbued with it, then it is indeed the disease from which you will never be cured. <laughs> well, on that note, Stephen, perhaps we should say goodbye to our listeners. I think so. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email thomas at Fleming.Foundation. We want to remind you that Foreign Affairs is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, simply write to james at fleming.foundation. As always, we want to thank our Gold and Charter members who we produce these podcasts for and who ensure that they can be produced in the first, in the first place. A uh, big thank you to Dr. Trifkovich and Dr. Fleming for your time. We know it's valuable. Thank you. Thank you. And until next episode, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age. <laughs>